In July 2020, tens of thousands of passionate and committed people from around the globe will convene in San Francisco and Oakland at the 23rd International AIDS Conference. This gathering among the world's largest conferences will happen during a critical year when global goals for the fight against HIV AIDS come due. In 2020, the conference comes back to sacred ground in the Bay Area, a front line in the fight against HIV after 30 years. In this podcast, we'll be talking to a diversity of inspiring guests. They have been and remain at the very forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV AIDS, both at home and abroad. It took a critical mass of people within the medical delivery system to acknowledge the presence of this unknown infection and to mobilize a response before any of the specifics were known. In today's episode, we spoke with Eric Goosby, a close friend. Dr. Eric Goosby began his storied career as a leader in HIV AIDS at San Francisco General Hospital. In the early 1980s, when the disease first emerged and began to cause widespread panic and human suffering, Dr. Goosby pioneered new models for HIV AIDS clinical care. Thereafter, Dr. Goosby served as a U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator under President Obama and currently as Special Envoy on Tuberculosis to the U.N. Secretary General. I'm Andrew Schwartz. I'm Steve Morrison. And I'm Sarah Allender. This is AIDS 2020. Dr. Goosby, the International AIDS Conference is back in San Francisco in in 2020, uh, San Francisco and Oakland for the first time in 30 years. You were, of course, there 30 years ago, and you were one of the first doctors to ever treat an AIDS patient in San Francisco. What was it like back then? What do you remember then? And why do you think it's exciting to, you know, have it now coming back? Well, uh, what I remember then is uh, where we were as a community, a doctor community, in our understanding of the disease uh, and our response to it. Uh, We at that time were very good at early aggressive diagnosis of opportunistic infections, early and aggressive treatment of them. Uh, San Francisco had a marginally better yield in being that aggressive at people surviving the opportunistic infections at higher rates than they did in other centers. Uh, It bought months for people uh, as opposed to years, Uh, but we were counting months in those those days. Yeah, I was going to say, back then you were talking about months. Yeah. And, and, and adding a couple months to someone's life with this disease was, was, was a big deal. was a victory. And, uh, you know, it, it was a group of uh, physicians and nurses who were not oncologists. Uh, Paul Volberding was the only oncologist in the, in the group and Don Abrams. Um, and then later other oncologists came in. But the vast majority of the response were infectious disease doctors who, as a personality type, Uh, are not into uh, palliative care. Uh, they're more the magic bullet type. Yeah. I want to. I want to diagnose it. I want to send this bullet that's going to kill it, right. and I want the person to walk out of here. I mean, that's the that's the energy that's in uh, infectious disease doctor. And this disease being so elusive, there's no magic bullet for it. At that time, and you could still say no. that it still confounds us. Yeah. Uh, but we now can give you one pill uh, a day. Uh, and that you largely do not have side effects from that will keep you alive so you die from something else. Right. Uh, you know, the average age is 74. 
Which is amazing. Which is amazing. But it's not a cure. Uh, and right. uh, I think you know people are still looking for the cure, uh, and, and I believe we will indeed find it. Uh, we're that close. Well, we just had some news a couple weeks ago that we reaffirmed that the Berlin patient wasn't a fluke. It wasn't. Uh, repeated the study. The problem is, is that that's not a scalable treatment right. uh, to do a bone marrow uh, transplant to find someone who has a CCR5 receptor defect to be your your donor for your bone marrow. So you're you're transplanting cells into the, a person that will not allow HIV to attach to it as the cure is is hugely impressive, but it's about a 50% mortality rate, you know, to ablate someone's bone marrow yeah. uh, and get them through that and then to put the new bone marrow in them. It's not really a public health scalable response, but it will show us things that will probably help at large population levels, but not anytime soon. So I don't, I don't see that as a viable treatment. Yeah. I heard an interview um, recently with Peter Staley, who was saying that he hopes to be there at the end when there actually is a cure. Do you see a cure in Peter Staley's lifetime? Uh, I would like to think yes. You know, we could go into a discussion about the science, but it's that close. Yeah. Our ability to say we have eradicated the virus from an individual, uh, we thought we had done it a couple of times. And, and then after a year, uh, it comes back in three weeks in a normal person. In these people, we hadn't seen it for 12 months, 14 months. So we did something there that further sterilized an individual from all those little hiding compartments in the vitreous of the eye and lymph nodes, CNS, bone marrow. Uh, we don't really know where it's hiding, but it's dormant and it's just sitting there and uh, not telling the body it's doing anything. So the body isn't reacting as if it's infected, which is the signal for the drugs to work. So the mechanism we have for that treatment isn't going isn't to take it all out. So there's all these creative uh, strategies to try to tease the virus out, uh, you know, shock it and kill it, where you kind of entice it to come out, get in front of the antiretrovirals that it's been hiding from. But we're so close that somebody's going to figure it out, you know, is, is, my, is my take on it. I want to bring my colleague, Dr. Steve Morrison in. Steve? Thank you. Eric, thanks for being with us today. I wanted to ask you to reflect on the arc of your career, which has spanned the period of initial crisis, the, the trauma that was experienced in that period. Uh, you were at the creation and implementation of the Ryan White Act in the Clinton administration. You've led PEPFAR. Uh, so we've gone through periods of crisis, periods of great progress and recovery. We're in a period now of many outstanding challenges. We're in a period now of a risk of regression, but we have the Trump administration coming forward with a plan to to uh, reduce by 90% new infections in the United States. So it's it, the story does not end, but your career spans these many different phases. So as you look back now, what are the major lessons that you that you see coming out of this life of battling in these dangerous infectious diseases, principally HIV, but also tuberculosis now? Well, that's a great question, Steve. I think that uh, w one of the kind of lessons that I've reflected on is how throughout this response, both uh, domestically and internationally, it is always boiled down to a cadre of individuals who uh, 
came together and responded, be it at a clinic level, a hospital level, a village level, a uh, you know a state, a province, whatever, a country. Um, and it has struck me over and over again that uh, if it weren't for a handful of people in just about any country you could name, the response would be very different. Uh, and what I mean by that is it took a critical mass uh, of uh, people kind of within the medical delivery system who were credible to it to acknowledge the presence of this unknown infection and to mobilize a response before any of the specifics were known. And I have come to appreciate that that, that takes a lot of courage. Mm -hmm. uh, it's easier to stand back and ignore it. And that's what most countries and individuals did for years. And it was uh, uh, a few sentinel outbreaks that were uh, responded to. Uh, most outbreaks were not. And I've asked myself, why is that the case? I think one of the unique things in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, is from day one, um, the outbreak of HIV immediately convened both uh, the Department of Health in San Francisco and the Academic Medical Center in San Francisco, UC San Francisco, from day one. And it was out of fear that that convening occurred. But everyone saw this happening. Our hospitals, emergency rooms, intensive care units began to fill up with young men. Uh, it took us a, a couple of months to figure out kind of risk factors uh, that did hold. But for the longest time, um, we didn't know if it was airborne. We didn't have a test until 1984. So we were seeing people not knowing if they were infected, not knowing how it spread. We knew sex and blood, but we didn't know it couldn't come by air. And the anxiety that that created in the health profession, the doctor and nurse community, uh, is something that we forget. Is that what you mean by the fear? That you were scared, didn't know what it, how it was transmitted? Yeah, you knew that you had something that killed people 100% of the time. But we weren't sure that it wasn't just sexually transmitted. We thought it could be aerosolized. And, um, and there was some conflicting data initially, uh, but we weren't seeing it, but we still didn't know. And were the patients afraid to come in for treatment? Yeah. Patients were afraid. The community knew that something was moving through the community. Yeah. Uh, and there were a lot of fears in and around that. Uh, but the only place they came was to the medical delivery system for help. They weren't going elsewhere. Right. Well, and people forget, I think, too, at that time that there weren't a lot of people standing up for people who were infected or people who were concerned that they might get the disease. People were, you know, protesting for lots of other issues, you know, Live Aid, for instance, you know, apartheid in South Africa. They right, weren't, you right. know, th there wasn't a whole activist community back then like there is now. Mm. None. There was a growing awareness. Uh, this was before the activist community happened. Uh, there was a kind of human rights, civil rights agenda that had started. Uh, it wasn't big, but in San Francisco, it was definitely there. Sure. Uh, and uh, the community was just starting to see its political organizing pay off. Harvey Milk was just preceded the outbreak of HIV in San Francisco. Uh, so that political organizing and being a political voting block 
uh, took San Francisco by surprise. It was kind of like one election as a community became a player from that point on. And the political activation is part of what happened. Before we talk about what lies ahead in AIDS 2020, Mm. let's compare that with what happened 30 years earlier where you were present during that last conference that was held in San Francisco, which was very turbulent. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about what that was like. This was at a point where an AZT had been identified, and uh, we had done the the research to identify AZT. This is the first antiretroviral that worked, Uh, and it only gave 18 months of life in a single monotherapy format, uh, and then stopped working. Resistance developed. Um, But it told us for the first time that antiretrovirals were a viable, uh, worthy of the attention and the investment that the United States was making at the time. And, um, uh, but the uh, growing uh, 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 anger around not being responded to as a disease kind of on the planet was also growing. And the frustration over lack of political acknowledgement uh, with President Reagan had already hit and had moved through with the acknowledgement that the response had been inadequate. No federal dollars had come to epicenter cities. Uh, Not a dime had come uh, until 91 with Ryan White. Mm -hmm. So that first decade of response had been just municipalities and states. Most didn't do it. Most didn't respond. San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, uh, Boston, New York, and Miami were the only cities that actually put budget toward it. And they did it kind of from about mid-80s on. And that was very much an agenda at the meeting. Uh, There was a lot of anger. Uh, People were getting yelled down because of lack of response. Secretary Sullivan appeared at that? Secretary Sullivan appeared, uh, was sympathetic to all the issues, uh, but was being kind of the target of the negative uh, responses. ACT UP was getting effective at staging events that got a lot of media attention and were relatively short and no harm done, but got a lot of attention. And animal feces and uh, pig blood was thrown at the meeting uh, um, at the the secretary. And it was um, really kind of an unorchestrated event <laughs> in that sense. They then went to the streets and marched down Market Street, uh, which, you know, I don't think that would happen now. So, yeah. uh, but I have to say that we were talking earlier about the, uh, the time was also, I think, typified by uh, patients came to these meetings because they wanted to learn about progress and they were looking for treatments. Uh, They attended sessions and participated in discussions that were largely, at that time, only scientific. It hadn't become community, that Mm -hmm. meeting yet. Mm -hmm. It was like Croy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And just scientific presentations by scientists who were in the field doing it. Patients weren't generally in the meeting. Uh, you know, then that's how they were referred to as patients. You know, we're, we're, what are all these patients being in the meeting? But they insisted, uh, not forced their way in. They asked and came. Uh, but it uh, added a certain live it, it added, dimension. It added a, a different element to well, it. Well, and they needed to get smart about the science. 
And they did. So and they could be effective in their activism, right? Isn't that what it was? This was very much part of that. Yeah. Project Inform had, had started at that point, uh, which became a multinational NGO, but it was at the time just a community-based uh, organization in San Francisco that compiled all the research matched with kind of uh, gray literature, articles that had been written in, in one thing or another. A very, really an excellent compilation uh, and a first that was then translated, digested for a non-scientific reader. Right. And they're still up and running to this day. And so at this conference, Steve was mentioning, you know, so now, how do you think this one's going to be different? I can tell you that there is a genuine desire to deal with the Oakland-San Francisco tension and to come out of the conference with uh, a blended response. San Francisco has many more resources than Oakland. It always has. Oakland's response uh, has been less than optimal, and it's complicated as to why. But it has been, since day one, a problem, even when funded, in spending money, kind of like D.C. was, Mm -hmm. where you'd give them money and they they wouldn't turn it into program. And the reasons for that are complicated. Alameda County has multiple cities in it. It's got one Department of Health. Uh, you know, Richmond, Berkeley, Oakland uh, are all, Walnut Creek are all in Alameda County. So talk about different populations and sure. responding to They just never figured that out and engaged it. What they had to do is figure it out and engage it. Uh, and uh, and they didn't. And now the Raiders are moving, and that and now sucks, the Raiders too. are moving. Yeah. Uh, it does. I yeah, mean, this is serious, uh, yeah, right? It's terrible. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I got to say that the leadership in this meeting is committed to uh, changing the dialogue uh, with Oakland and San Francisco. Uh, not sure how that's going to be, but there's a lot of active meeting going on around it. There are a lot of people, a lot of political people, uh, Speaker Pelosi and Barbara Lee, uh, both have already committed to an active role in it. We want to feature them in it. And they want to have a policy track that would be a kind of a first for IAS. And they've asked me to think about what that might contain. That's We'd exciting. I'd love to think with both of you about that. Well, what about the fact that the Bay, by comparison with 30 years ago, economically, mm. it's just been transformed. Mm. It's a... It's a much different place economically and culturally, I it think. It is. It is. And is this an opportunity to to engage the tech firms in a new and different way around the it, response? Everybody's thinking that. We just can't figure out what the ask is, but we're going we're gonna to come to that. Uh, so I, I know what the yeah, ask is. Yeah, yeah. Lots of money, <laughs> yeah. lots of support logistically, yeah, yeah. and lots of technology. Yeah. That's the ask. That's the ask. That's the ask. And, and you know, I think that it's incumbent upon them, especially given all the issues that they've created in San Francisco and Oakland. And, and they have. And they have. And, and you know, I think it's really symbolic that, and, and really good, that this is a conference, AIDS 2020, San Francisco slash Oakland. It, it really, like you were saying, it shows something. Mm-hmm, it does. But I like the way you, you characterize uh, the Silicon Valley infusion. Uh, it has taken the Bay Area to its knees with housing. Right. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not a housing enthusiast, but boy, everyone in the Bay Area has become sophisticated with housing. We've got family members who were born and raised in San Francisco who cannot, uh, in their wildest dreams, you know, afford a house there. So all these families are are moving 
in out, and it has it has ramifications for people I grew up with. Uh, not being around for their parents because they're, you know, 50 miles away. Sure. But more than that, uh, the homeless issue in the city is crescendoing. Yeah. And um, it's it's another story, but something that we uh, as a uh, community need to engage with. And that's becoming apparent. It's scary. I mean, it used to be you would go to the Bay Area and homeless people were casualties of the 60s. And, you know, they kind of some of them wanted to be homeless even, you know, and it was you know, some of them were mentally ill, of course. Some of them had drug problems. Some of them, you know, were, you know, hippies and just didn't really live anywhere. Yeah. Now it's, you know, teachers who teach in public schools in San Francisco. Every day, go to school, live in their car. Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah, it's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. I did want to raise one other final issue here, which is. Uh, the initiative launched by President Trump in yes. terms of trying to, in the next several years, reduce by 90% new infections in the United States. But you're concentrated in 48 counties, mostly in the south, mm-hmm. a couple of urban centers, including Washington, D.C., San Juan, and some rural areas. Tell us what your view is of this. Is this promising? What are going to be the major parameters of trying to have success. This is going to be unfolding as we move towards AIDS 2020, Mm -hmm. which I think offers the opportunity for the administration to tell a good story Mm -hmm. if things move forward. I applaud it. Uh, It is uh, always the right idea to identify uh, the expanding edge of your epidemic, the new seroconverters, and surround those individuals geographically, geomapped, uh, with services that bring them into care, test them, give them prevention strategies, overwhelm them with all of that, and identify those who are infected early and get them on treatment so they cannot infect others. So we have the tools, if concentrated and sustained, to do it. The problem in 40 or so uh, counties being the burden of disease, uh, the southeast corridor of the country being where uh, much of it resides, uh, African-American women being the highest seroconverter, that's been since 1994, okay? Uh, We have tried uh, with Ryan White. Much of the first decade of my career was focused on trying to get African-American communities to embrace the fact that this was their disease, not a gay disease, which is still what you'll hear, uh, and that um, their sons and daughters and husbands and wives are at risk. And the revolving door we talked about with prisons plays out in black communities in a way that it doesn't in white communities. And it's just the way we described. That individual comes in, gets infected, doesn't perceive themselves as being at high risk themselves. So they go out and have sex with their girlfriends and wives when they get out of prison, not perceiving themselves as sure. being a gay man and having had gay sex. They, they don't see themselves that way. Sure. Uh, and um, that perceptual difference allowed them to put their uh, loved ones at risk uh, in a way that um, has an innocence to it uh, that uh, allowed it to propagate. But the awareness of that in the black community is tiny still. We tried to get churches to take it up, uh, do testing in churches. Some took it up, but I can count them on one hand. 
but all of that needs to be mobilized and matched with a political will, matched with a robust uh, reinfused delivery system. There can be a whole lot of good that will come out of this effort. Uh, definitely doable. Uh, I worry about um, the receptivity by uh, the high-risk groups. That's going to be the right limiter. Dr. Goosby, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And um, we'd love to have you back here at CSIS as soon as we can. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you for listening to AIDS 2020. Please subscribe and write a review wherever you listen to your podcast so that more people can find us. If you want to find out more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. To find out more about the AIDS 2020 conference, visit AIDS2020.org.